It's late on the morning of May 7th, 1915, the last day of your honeymoon cruise. You have just woken from a dream. You were alone somewhere in a deep woods, chipping away on a stone with a hammer and chisel. The message being that you were among the last remaining survivors of a new English colony on the coast of the New World. Your spouse has been killed by Indians. And should anyone find this stone, you're in dire need of rescue. And then your eyes open. It was just a bad dream. You are awake in a nicely furnished honeymoon stateroom aboard a luxury liner about to arrive in Liverpool. Your spouse is sleeping peacefully beside you. This is the last day of your honeymoon cruise. You are returning home. All is well. Yet, there is a strange gnawing feeling that something is wrong, or about to go wrong. It's probably the effects of the nightmare still wearing off, you think. Two weeks earlier, in New York City, you and your spouse were married. He comes from a wealthy New York family, and the future looks bright. You both bid farewell to family, friends, and well-wishers as you set off on this two-week adventure. And it has been an adventure. You've met wonderful people on board, like actress Rita Jolivet, architect Theodate Pope, and millionaire George Kessler. You and your spouse have been guests at several parties hosted by Mr. Kessler on board the ship, which is huge. Your favorite celebrity is the American theater producer, Charles Froman, who tells wonderful stories. Just yesterday you were sharing lunch with Mr. Froman and Miss Jolivet. Mr. Froman was the first to speak. Here we are landing tomorrow, and I must say I'm deeply disappointed, he said with a smile. Whatever for? asked Miss Jolivet. Froman pulled a cigar from his pocket, theatrically, as you might have expected it, lit it, and said, I fully expected we would be chased around by a German U-boat, but that hasn't happened. We just saw your movie, The Unafraid, Miss Jolivet. It must be so exciting to be an actress. Do you ever get nervous? You asked. Not at all, answered Miss Jolivet, and the easy conversation lasted for an hour. You spent the rest of the afternoon enjoying some of the activities that you both had missed thus far on the cruise. The next morning, the nightmare is forgotten. A new day has dawned, and you and your spouse are entering the dining salon, where you are seated at a table near the window. Your new husband picks up his water glass and offers a toast. Well, last day, he says, smiling, having no clue of the irony behind that innocent statement. And a new beginning, you add. It was at that moment that the crystal chandeliers on the ceiling began to sway and clink, and the dining room, for a brief moment, shakes Next comes the sound of a muffled boom, causing some people to stand up and quickly look around. What was that? someone asks. You are both seated near the door. You rise and follow a few others out to the deck. Someone asks a ship's officer what that was, and he calmly says, A torpedo has hit the ship. Are we in danger? you ask. You'd better find some life jackets, he answers. A new nightmare, only this time a real one. Has just begun.
Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast, where history often comes alive, and tonight is no exception. 107 years ago, as I write this story, it was 1915. Europe was at war, although life in the U.S. was going on peacefully. People were enjoying themselves, and one source of pleasure, for those who could afford it, was crossing the Atlantic Ocean on a luxury ocean liner. Cunard, a shipbuilding company in England, built and sailed some of the greatest passenger ships, including the Titanic, which, they said, could never sink. This ship, the Lusitania, was built in 1907 and was one of the biggest and most luxurious of the Cunard liners. It was 785 feet long, had eight decks, and could hold 3,000 passengers and crew members. The Titanic might have been bigger than the Lusitania, but it wasn't as fast. The Lusitania, powered by four huge turbine engines, gave the ship an average speed of 25 knots. The cost of building the Lusitania was so high in 1907 that Cunard sought financing from the British. Part of the deal involved Cunard ships carrying supplies for the government. And then World War I broke out. And when World War I broke out, the Lusitania regularly carried war supplies from the U.S. to England. And this fact did not escape the Germans. The Germans were engaged in war with most of Europe. And in addition to being aware the Cunard liners were carrying much-needed supplies to their enemies, they were also angry with England for setting up naval blockades which prevented German ships from leaving their home waters. The blockade also prevented foreign ships from supplying Germany with needed supplies and food. So in February of 1915, the Germans announced they were establishing a war zone in the waters surrounding the British Isles. Their submarines, also called U-boats, were not bothered by blockades, and could strike out against the ships that they felt posed a threat. Historians agree that the Cunard Lines was aware of this and chose to ignore it, thinking that the Germans would never attack a passenger liner, especially those carrying American passengers, because they didn't want to broke the U.S. and thus gain another powerful enemy. A very dangerous, and as it turned out, stupid assumption. When Germany announced this new war zone, President Woodrow Wilson announced that Germany would be held accountable for any American lives or property lost in any attacks. But as it turned out, for nearly two years after the sinking of the Lusitania by Germany, the U.S. did not respond with force. It took two years of constant German harassment, which involved the sinking of U.S. merchant ships and more loss of civilian lives before America entered the war. Congress on April 6, 1917, declared war on Germany and its allies, and it was the sinking of the Lusitania that really sealed America's resolve to enter the war. The Lusitania had left Liverpool on her 201st voyage, arriving in New York on the 24th of April, 1915. A group of German-Americans, hoping to avoid controversy if the Lusitania were to be attacked by a U-boat, discussed their concerns with a representative of the German embassy, and the embassy decided to warn passengers before her next crossing, which turned out to be her fatal crossing, to warn them not to sail aboard the Lusitania and on April 22nd, they placed a warning advertisement in 50 American newspapers, including those in New York. The warning read, Travelers intending to embark on the Atlantic voyage are reminded that a state of war exists between Germany and her allies, and Great Britain and her allies, that the zone of war includes the waters adjacent to the British Isles, that, in accordance with formal notice given by the Imperial German government, vessels flying the flag of Great Britain or any of her allies are liable to destruction in those waters, and that travelers sailing in the war zone on the ships of Great Britain or her allies do so at their own risk. The Imperial German Embassy 
Washington, D.C., April 22, 1915. This warning was printed adjacent to an advertisement for Lusitania's return voyage. The warning led to some agitation in the press and worried the ship's passengers and crew. The Lusitania prepared to sail from New York Harbor on its 202nd Atlantic crossing on May 1, 1915. Aboard were 702 crew members and 1,257 passengers, including 129 children. While most of the passengers were British or Canadian, there were more than 150 Americans aboard. You and your spouse, in this story, were two of those 150. Up to the point where the dining room shook, your honeymoon had been a fairy tale affair, but now you've both been gobsmacked between the eyes with reality as the ship's purser announces that the Lusitania has been struck by a torpedo and it's time to grab life jackets. Someone else asks, Is the ship going to sink? And the purser answers, in a calm British voice, I doubt so, sir, but we must follow safety precautions. Women and children should get into lifeboats. The actress, Miss Jolivet, who has now appeared on deck with life jacket in hand, announces, I'd rather stay here. I'll get all wet and dirty in a lifeboat. To which Charles Froman, standing by her, answers, Exactly, dear. You stay with me. I'll take care of you. Neither of you agree with either of your new friends' thinking, and your husband says, I think you should get into a lifeboat. You suddenly remember your jewelry in your honeymoon suite. It will be lost forever. Do you want me to get it? He asks. You are now faced with three choices. One, to go with him to get the jewelry. Two, to forget the jewelry. Or three, to send your husband to get the jewelry. A choice which you mentally erase as quickly as you thought it, because you don't want to get separated. The noise on deck, with everyone pouring out of the ship, is getting louder. And he yells at you now, over the din, repeating the question. Do you want me to get it? You grab his hand, saying, No, I'm going with you. And you both race down the stairs, passing a horde of people headed up the stairs. They are racing for the lifeboats, while you are racing to get your jewelry. You are both wondering if heading back to the stateroom is a good decision, or one that will cost you your lives. Two minutes have now passed since you left the dining table. While you both are racing for the room, the crew is trying to size up the situation. The torpedo had struck the starboard side of the Lusitania right behind the bridge, causing an unusually heavy detonation with a very strong explosive cloud, according to the ship's log of the commander of the U-20 German sub. A second explosion followed almost immediately. This, he suspected, was a boiler or coal dust explosion caused by the torpedo. He recorded that the big ship stopped in its track, heeled over to starboard very quickly, and began sinking bow first. He mentioned nothing of the destruction and human carnage taking place on deck as all that happened. It had to have been gut-wrenching to watch as efforts to launch lifeboats were fouled and people slid or jumped off the decks. On board the Lusitania, Leslie Morton, an 18-year-old lookout at the bow, had spotted thin lines of foam racing at the ship. He shouted, Torpedoes coming on the starboard side! through a megaphone, thinking the bubbles were coming from two projectiles. When the torpedo struck under the bridge, a plume of debris, steel plating, and water shot upward, hard enough to knock lifeboat number five off its davits. It sounded like a million-ton hammer hitting a steam boiler a hundred feet high, said one survivor afterward. A second, more powerful explosion followed right behind. The Lusitania was only a few miles off the southern coast of Ireland at the time. 
We'll return with the last minutes aboard the Lusitania right after these sponsor messages. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. And now back to our story. Captain Turner ordered Quartermaster Hugh Johnston to turn Lusitania towards Ireland in an effort to beach the ship. Johnston put the wheel hard over, and the ship turned, but soon overcorrected to port. Turner ordered the rudder back to starboard, but the ship's hydraulics had failed, and the ship was not responding. Lusitania was tracing an arc in the water. Turner then ordered the ship's engines to be reversed to stop the ship, but the steam lines had ruptured, probably due to the second explosion. Steam pressure continued to fall, and the ship's engines did not respond. Johnston could only watch the commutator as Lusitania's starboard list crept upward from 15 degrees to 18 and 19, and then past 20. The use of the coal bunkers as longitudinal bulkheads meant that, if the ship was damaged, water would be contained to one side. At the time of Lusitania's construction, the worst damage that war could do to ships came from shells. In that case, longitudinal bulkheads would have doubled as protection for the ship's machinery. With the advent of the torpedo, the longitudinal compartments compounded the damage torpedoes made on the ship. Those compartments, unfortunately, caused the ship to list seven degrees when one compartment was breached, fifteen degrees when two were breached, and so on until the ship was in danger of capsizing or having water slosh over the top of the compartments until the ship's buoyancy was compromised. The resulting list caused the lifeboats on the high side of the ship to swing inboard, making them almost unlaunchable. The lifeboats on the low side swung out. Evacuating passengers and crew had to bridge a massive gap between deck and lifeboat with a 60-foot drop in between. The wireless telegraph operators, Robert Leith and Donald McCormick, sent out an SOS, which was received at Queenstown. Despite being about 10 miles from the Irish coast, the fleet of fishing trawlers and small boats coming to Lusitania's aid was not fast. Most would take about two hours to reach the site of the stricken ocean liner. The ship's electric plant soon failed, and the wireless operators switched over to battery power. As saloon passenger Oliver Bernard ran through the first-class entrance on the boat deck, he claimed to have seen the elevators stuck between decks A and B, trapping passengers inside. Bulkhead doors could not be opened electronically, and those trapped in the boiler rooms could only crawl up for a chance to reach safety. Lusitania's headway had to slow down before Captain Turner gave the order to abandon ship. Passengers were more confused than panicked as they were still trying to comprehend what was happening. An Italian family from third class consisting of a grandmother, mother, and three children turned to Charles Laureate for help. Laureate put life belts on the grandmother and mother 
and found another for the oldest child. The family then proceeded to sit down on a collapsible boat, quietly awaiting further instructions. Laureate also saw that several people had their life belts on incorrectly and sought to assist them. However, some thinking that he was trying to take their belts away, ran away in terror. Lusitania's foxhole soon plunged underwater. While all this is happening, you both reach your suite and start gathering up your keepsakes, using a carpet bag to hold them. You grab the warmest pullover you have and extra pairs of socks just in case you both end up in the lifeboat for hours. If you're in or on the water, the North Atlantic in May will be no picnic, you're thinking. You both then bolt out into the passageway, which is now crowded with people. During the two minutes spent gathering your belongings, the ship has already begun to list to starboard, and the people in the hall are tripping. You're trying to remember what instructions were given during boarding regarding life jackets. The room is equipped with two, you remember, and both of you rush back in, and each of you takes the three minutes required to put the flotation vests on. By now, you're sweating bullets, wondering if there'll be any lifeboats left. With any luck, the ship won't sink anyway, you think, and all this is just a lesson in... in what? Preparedness? Back outside the suite, the hallway's mobbed. This will take too long, your husband says. Maybe we should take the elevator. It won't be so crowded. You answer, no. With all these people, it'll be jammed. Let's stick to the stairs. And so you head for the stairs, which are busy, but the people are moving. You arrive at the lifeboat deck on the port side, which is already tilted up as the opposite side is listing down. It is now ten minutes after the explosion. The ship's starboard list has made launching the port side boats virtually impossible. Staff Captain Anderson is busy ordering the passengers who had entered the port side lifeboats to get out so that the boats could be pushed over the side and lowered. Although you are not aware of it just yet, many lifeboats on both sides have overturned either while loading or lowering. Lifeboat 2, carrying stewardess May Bird, pitched her and her companions into the ocean, where she somehow climbed back aboard to attempt getting off in a lifeboat again. Lifeboat 12, upset in the fall, spilling its compliment, as did Lifeboat 20, which carried saloon passengers Ogden Hammond and his wife Mary. Mary would be lost in the spill. Saloon passenger Isaac Lehman tried to force the lowering of Lifeboat 18 against the captain's orders, resulting in that boat swinging inboard and crushing a number of people on deck, including Caroline Hickson Kennedy and her sister Catherine Hickson. Of the portside lifeboats, where you have now arrived, only Lifeboat 14, carrying saloon passengers Virginia Loney and Mary and Laura Ryerson, managed to be launched. Lifeboat 2 eventually floated off with Maybird inside as the ship sank. But a careless mistake, forgetting to put in the plug at the bottom of the lifeboat, caused the lifeboat to be swamped after it left the mother's ship, resulting in more casualties, one of which was Mary Ryerson. The ship has now listed so badly to starboard that the lifeboats on that side are now hanging out of reach of most of the passengers. For this reason, the deck chairs are being used to assist passengers across the chasm between the lifeboats and the mother's ship. That chasm is 60 feet deep. Saloon passengers Charles and Mabel Leroyd are in a starboard lifeboat which was struck by another lowering boat that capsizes. Mabel survived. Charles didn't. A few minutes ago, Charles Laureate attempted to free lifeboat 7 from the mothership by cutting away at the ropes that tied down the boat, but he realized that the Lusitania would sink before the lifeboat could be freed. Laureate pleaded to others in the boat to jump. Only a few listened, and he jumped over himself. He looked back 
and saw the small craft and its screaming occupants dragged under by the mother ship. Lifeboat 11 upset on the first attempted launch, spilling out its compliment. War correspondent Ernest Cowper put six-year-old Helen Smith, who had been separated from her parents and was wandering by herself on the deck, into lifeboat 13 before climbing in himself. Number 13 was safely launched. Third-class passengers Elizabeth Duckworth and Alice Scott climbed into lifeboat 17 after seeing off Alice's son Arthur in another lifeboat. At the last minute, Elizabeth decided to climb out. Second cabin passenger Ian Holborn thought that by assisting 12-year-old Avis Dolphin and her nurses Hilda Ellis and Sarah Smith into lifeboat 17 that he would be getting them to safety. To the horror of Holborn and Duckworth, they saw that lifeboat capsize just before it reached the water. Avis survived. Her nurses and Alice Scott did not. You are both now on the port side, the high side, where people are lining up to get into the lifeboats. Men are hugging and kissing their wives and children before the women and children climb into the boat. A lifeboat has just started lowering, but tips pouring out women, children, and crew into the cold Atlantic. Now people are screaming. Panic is set in fully. Your husband is at your shoulder saying, You've got to get in a lifeboat, and this time he's dead serious. I'm not leaving you, you answer stubbornly above the din. There's still room. I'll catch one later. But that idea falls on its face. No, you repeat. We'll face this together. A woman passing by hears you and says to both of you, Listen, the lifeboats, some of them, are turning over, and people are falling into the water. I'm heading for the collapsibles. We've a better chance, and there you can stay together. It's chance, but then every option right now is a risk. They follow the woman to where the collapsibles are piled on the deck. A group of passengers is standing near them, unsure of what to do. A bald man says, They're locked onto the deck. I can't budge them. They're useless. At that moment, a crew member appears and unlocks the bolts holding the collapsibles. You need to assemble them, he says. It's easy. I'll show you how. And he slides one off the top and moves it out on the deck. Your husband says, If we get in one and the ship goes down, we'll float. It's a long shot, but it's the only shot we've got together. Are you crazy? Asks another passenger, a burly man in his 50s. You're just going to get in and wait? Then the man walks to the rail and looks over. He sees bodies floating down there, capsized lifeboats, people screaming. He walks back. You both turn your attention to the crew member as he quickly assembles the collapsible. You can see that it is similar to a life raft, rather flat bottom, raising about 18 inches from the deck. The wooden part of the boat is only about 18 inches deep. Above that, there are canvas sides that need to be raised up, like opening a concertina, you're thinking. And then it will require iron bars to raise the seats up. With a wide beam and basically two bows, it looks doable. You both pull one off the pile and climb in and get busy pulling up the canvas side panels on the collapsible and setting up the seats. The burly man grabs a second one and gets in doing the same. Well, he says, it beats just waiting for something to happen. The woman who guided you gets into the one that the crew member had assembled. Your husband realizes how silly you all look sitting in a boat in the middle of the afternoon on the deck of the Lusitania. But with all the confusion around them and the boat listing so badly amidst the panic and confusion, no one seems to notice or care. He wonders if and how you can survive the rush of water that will soon come crashing over you and finds comfort in the fact that at least you'll be together. He grabs your hand, which is shaking, as you both sit on the collapsible's deck, 
Your back's against the seat. So this is what the last moments before death look like, you're thinking. He looks down at his watch. All this in 18 minutes. Suddenly, you both hear a loud crack, and the Lusitania begins to sink. You're collapsible, along with two others, and people, along with chairs and debris, are sliding down the deck in what seems like a last moment in Dante's hell, only instead of fire, this is water. You both lie down on your backs, holding hands, taking what might be your last deep breaths. Then the seawater rushes over the rails with a deafening roar, sweeping you and the boat off the deck, while the huge ship slowly disappears beneath the waves. Afterward, you both find yourselves floating on the ocean and staring at the sky. You have been spared from the whirlpool you expected, and now you find yourselves adrift in the now crowded ocean where the cries and screams of panicked people fill the air. Suddenly, the collapsible is rocking. You both look up and see hands gripping the sides of your boat. People are trying to pull themselves aboard. Your husband orders you to get on one side. We'll pull them in evenly so we don't capsize, okay? But the people are panicked, and as they try to climb aboard, they're also pulling at each other. And the boat. The boat is rocking dangerously. Your husband grabs an oar and threatens those trying to climb in. You stop him. What are you going to do? You say. You can't. You, you can't stop them. You don't want to hurt anyone. He drops the oar. Within minutes, the panicked survivors have capsized the boat. And the oars are gone. The bag of keepsakes is gone. The warm clothing is gone. But you have your lives. The rest is just things. Both of you cling to the side of the overturned boat with the rest of the passengers. Then someone says, Okay, people, we have to right this boat. Here's what we have to do. And after a long effort, the boat is righted. Those who can climb in do, and the rest are pulled in. All are too tired to move. Now there is no Lusitania. The huge ship is gone. What remains is surreal. Only bodies and lifeboats and water remain. Nearly two hours you wait, and then, in the distance, as it begins to get dark, the lights of a rescue ship are seen headed your way. There were 48 lifeboats on the Lusitania, but only six were lowered successfully from the starboard side. Two were lowered from the port side, but one of those sank immediately upon hitting the water, the boat plug having been missing. The last lifeboat on the starboard side, number 21, with 52 people on board, reached the water safely and cleared the ship moments before its final plunge. A few of the collapsible lifeboats had washed off the Lusitania's decks as she sank, providing refuge for the few that had climbed into them and the many swimmers who could reach them. Captain Turner was on deck near the bridge, clutching the ship's logbook and charts in a waterproof bag when a wave swept upward toward the bridge and the rest of the ship's forward superstructure, knocking him overboard into the sea. He managed to swim and find a chair floating in the water, which he clung to. He was to survive, having been pulled unconscious from the water after spending three hours there. His log came out with him, and that was important, because it contained his last navigational fix, which was made just two minutes before the torpedo hit, and he was able to remember the ship's speed and bearing just moments before it sank. This proved accurate enough to locate the wreck after the war. The ship lay in 350 feet of water, having traveled about two nautical miles after it was torpedoed, leaving a trail of debris and bodies behind. Those who survived watched as the ship's bow sank completely and her stern rose up out of the water, revealing her two huge propellers, and then sank under the water. 
"'She was only eleven miles up the old head of Kinsale "'on the southern tip of Ireland. "'Despite the fact that the Lusitania was close to shore, "'it took two hours for rescue boats to reach them. "'The fifty-two degrees, eleven centigrade water, was cold, "'and many who had survived the sinking of the ship "'did not survive the water temperatures. Seven hundred and sixty-four passengers and crew were rescued and landed at Queenstown. The final death toll for the disaster came to a catastrophic number. Of the 1,959 passengers and crew, 1,195 had been lost. In the days following the disaster, the Cunard Lines offered a cash reward to local boats for the recovery of bodies which were by then floating all over the Irish Sea and some as far away as the Welsh coast. Only 289 bodies were recovered, 65 of which were never identified. The Lusitania had sunk in 18 minutes, and what each person did in those 18 minutes was critical to whether they survived or not. We'll return to our story right after these sponsor messages. And now, the last minutes aboard the Lusitania continues. Rita Jolivet, stage and screen actress, remains one of the most frequently referenced of the Lusitania passengers. Unlike many other survivors, she apparently handled the memory of the disaster very well. She spoke frequently of the sinking, but she did not seem haunted by it, and the nightmares, panic attacks, guilt, and anger which plagued the later years of so many of the Lusitania survivors didn't seem to have been a major factor in her life. Her fame as a survivor outlasted the acclaim of her dramatic career. Rita Jolivet had her first success on the London stage, but she was best known in 1915 for her long run in the Broadway hit Kismet and her critical success in the movie A Thousand Years Ago. Her first major motion picture, The Unafraid, by Cecil B. DeMille, had just opened when Rita boarded the Lusitania that May. The film has survived and shows that Miss Jolivet's vibrancy on stage succeeded in making the jump to the big screen. Her answer to the question, Do you get nervous?, would likely have indicated that she was perfectly at home before the camera. Miss Jolivet, according to her family and contemporary reviews, was a born raconteur. Vivacious, expressive, and quite flamboyant, the Lusitania disaster lectures she gave in conjunction with the Lusitania movie, Lest We Forget, were given high marks as both entertainment and education. Rita's 1918 testimony at the United States Limitation of Liability hearing remains the best and least fanciful account of her experiences on May 7, 1915, and it's presented here in its original Q&A form. Question. When did you make up your mind to sail? When did you go on the ship? Answer. At 8 o'clock in the morning, I made up my mind to sail, and I arrived at the dock at 5 minutes to 10. She was due to sail at 10 o'clock. The reason for my doing so was because the Lusitania was supposed to go quickly, and I wanted to see my brother before he left for the front. Question. Had you expected or thought of going on the St. Paul that same day? Answer. Miss Ellen Terry had suggested my going, and I said no, that I was in a hurry, and I was on a scheduled time, and was afraid of not seeing my brother. Question. When did the steamer finally sail, as far as you recollect? Answer. She finally sailed about one o'clock. Question. Your stateroom was on what deck? Answer. On deck D. It was a very bad room, because it was the last moment and I had to take an inside cabin. Question. Were you alone? Answer. Yes, but to my great surprise, I found my brother-in-law was going back too. I met him on the boat. He had also decided to hurry back to his wife, and she was in England. Question. There was no special circumstance on the voyage up to the day of the torpedoing? Answer. 
Not at all, except for the rumors. Question. On that day, on the 7th of May, Friday, did you notice anything about the speed of the vessel as compared with the former speed? Answer. Yes, I noticed that she had slowed down. Question. On Friday, do you recollect seeing the shore at all, and if so, about what time? Answer. I saw the shore when I was in the water. Question. Did you see it while you were on the steamer at all? Answer. No, sir, because I had not slept well the night before, and I had just got up for luncheon, and as I had an inside cabin, I could not see the shore from my cabin. Question. Where were you at the time the torpedo struck the ship? Answer. I was down in my cabin on deck D. Question. Did you feel one shock or two shocks? Answer. I felt a great shock, and I was thrown about a great deal. And she listed tremendously. Question. How soon did she begin to list after the shock? Answer. It seemed almost immediately. I didn't think we were torpedoed. I thought we had struck a loose mine. Question. What did you do after you felt the shock? Answer. I looked out and saw a woman putting on a life belt. So with great difficulty, I climbed up and got hold of my life belt, which I carried in my hand. Question. Where did you get it? Answer. From the top of the wardrobe. I climbed up on my bunk and got hold of the life belt. I believe there was a second one there, but I couldn't reach it very well. Then I climbed up on deck. I wanted to meet my brother-in-law, who was waiting for me on deck A. Question. You have spoken of the list that came immediately. Was that before or after you left your cabin? Answer. Before I left my cabin. With great difficulty, I walked through the corridor and walked up the four flights of stairs to deck A. Question. You found whom there? Answer. I found my brother-in-law and Mr. Charles Froman, and a Mr. Scott. I believe there was another gentleman behind. That, they said, was Mr. Vanderbilt, but I don't know. I'm not sure of that. Question. Did you put on your life belt then? Answer. No, my brother-in-law said, did you bring any others? And I said, no, because I couldn't reach the other. In fact, I didn't know that there were other life belts in my room. There were, but I didn't know at the time. In the hurry, I just grabbed the first one. Then Mr. Scott went downstairs to deck B, and he got up four life belts, and gave one to my brother-in-law, and one to Mr. Froman, and one he kept for himself. And while he was helping Mr. Froman on with his, and my brother-in-law was helping me with mine, someone stole his, Scott's, life belt, and Mr. Scott went down a second time, and brought up other life belts from deck B, and he gave his away to an old woman. We all offered him ours, and he said, No, he could swim better than any of us, and if we had to die, we had to die. Why worry? Question. Did you see any of the lifeboats lowered while you were up on deck A? Answer. Yes. We agreed to stick together, and I looked out on the deck, and I saw a lifeboat being lowered, but the guard's hand slipped. It was not lowered evenly, and the women and children were thrown out. Question. Do you remember which side of the ship that lifeboat was on? Answer. I'm not quite positive, but I think it was on the side that was nearer the port, nearer the shore. Question. That would be the port side? Answer. Yes, that would be the port side. Question. Did you notice anything about the list of the vessel as you stood up on deck A, whether it listed the same or whether it increased or not? Answer. No, it did not remain the same. She righted herself. She seemed to right herself. It was only noticeable at the beginning. Question. Was this lifeboat you clung to a regular lifeboat or a collapsible boat? Answer. It was a regular lifeboat. Question. When you went over the side, was the water up to the deck? Answer. It was the water that swept me away. Water came on the boat deck. Answer. Yes. Question. 
That part of the ship was down practically at the water's edge? Answer. Oh, it had already sunk. It was the water coming up, you see. Question. The lee side was underwater then? Answer. Yes. Question. On what part of the deck were you? Answer. I was in the middle of the deck. Question. In the middle from side to side? A. In the center. Near the elevator. Near the lift. Question. From side to side? Answer. Yes. Then we went out onto the deck and saw the ship was sinking right away and waited till the last moment, you see. And then she sank. Rita went on to enjoy a long career on stage and screen, finally dying in surgery on March 2, 1971, after being injured in a fall while dancing. She was demonstrating that she could still dance a jig when she stumbled and broke her hip. Beatrice Jolivet, upon learning the details of her sister-in-law's fatal accident, remarked, Oh well, she would go like that. True to form, Rita's last words were a lie about her age. I'm only 77, although she was actually in her 80s. One of her final films, a surreal French comedy by the title of Fifi, 1926, surfaced during the 1990s and was screened in Europe in 2003 to critical acclaim that doubtless they would have pleased her. We'll return with more stories from the Lusitania, beginning with the story and legend that surrounds Broadway producer Charles Froman in Part 2 of The Last Minutes Aboard the Lusitania, coming next week Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. If you're enjoying our story, please do send us a review, especially you Apple listeners, and also share our podcast, 1001 Heroes, with a friend. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We'll be back next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe and stay dry. And we'll be back soon.